Venturing into a different culture can open you up to new ways of experiencing our world, especially when you travel, as I call it, through the back door. I'm Rick Steves. I believe our best souvenirs are the experiences we can have when we connect with people and cultures on their terms. It's amazing how much smoother and richer the experience can be if we're sensitive to the cultural norms and unique perspectives of the people we're visiting. To help us travel smarter that way, we're checking in today with Jeff Greenwald at ethicaltraveler.org. Jeff's come up with a list of 13 tips for the accidental ambassador to help us in the tricky cross-cultural situations we're likely to encounter in our travels. And later, we'll get recommendations from travel experts for exploring the South Pacific and tips and tricks for enjoying Amsterdam to the max. Travel writer Don George joins me to start the hour as we catch up on your calls at 877-333-RICK. Thanks for coming along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're exploring the fine points of traveling in a way that makes our cultural impact on the small communities in the developing world a positive thing. We're about to learn some smart ways to be a culturally sensitive ambassador from the first world in our travels. Later, we'll ponder the romantic isles of the South Pacific for a little tropical adventure. And after that, I'll compare notes with a competing travel writer from Lonely Planet on some of the best backdoor sites in Amsterdam. Let's open with my friend, travel writer Don George, to see how you're traveling at 877-333-RICK. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Right now I'm joined by Don George, and Don's done a lot of traveling all over the planet, and I've done a lot of traveling in Europe, and together we're covering the map. <laughs> nice to have you here, Don. It's great to be here, Rick. We have Jeffrey on the line in Vancouver, B.C. Hi, Jeffrey. Hi. I work at a college here in Vancouver, and we do a project in northern Vietnam, a community-based tourism project, where we're trying to build a sustainable form of tourism in the villages by providing some technical training and and I know, Rick, with your uh, with your books, and you have a travel philosophy, and I know that the Lonely Planet books, you know, some of them, particularly the one on Vietnam, have a section on how travelers can have a less of an impact. But I'm wondering about the extent of the travel media's responsibility in the host community. Like, uh, you know, what should or what could the travel media do on the ground to make sure that the tourism is sustainable and that with all the visitors that are coming in, that the culture and the environment is sustained in some way. Are you asking how can travel publishers like us get our readers off on the right foot so they are not as uh, destructive in their travels and less of a problem? Well, I, I guess that that's one part of it is, you know, the traveler themselves, but also just with the host community. Is there a role for publishers? And, you know, it could be said that there is no role, but I'm just wondering, do you think that there should be a role where there's some investment made in the host communities I think you could make that case, but for me, I would rather focus on the people who I'm inspiring and equipping with information to travel and help them travel in a way that they will um, be friends of these places they're going and sensitive to the uh, environmental and, and cultural concerns. My hope is that they will then have an empathy for the struggles in that culture and be better global citizens and, and help out that way, rather than me personally, as a travel writer, supporting some good cause in northern Vietnam or something like this. So what do you think, Don? Certainly, we reach the vast audience through that message of how to be a sustainable tourist, how to be a responsible, aware traveler. And we try to put all of that information in all of our guidebooks. Lonely Planet does also actually have a Lonely Planet Foundation, and the funds from that foundation are used to support local projects uh, around the world on a grassroots level. So we do do that to a certain extent. But what I think we especially do that's important, along with Rick, is tell people how to be good, responsible travelers. And, and that's so incredibly important. And then you as a traveler, and you sound like you understand this completely, you will pass that word on to both the people in the communities you're visiting, which will encourage them to create more programs that will bring in more responsible travelers and also the travelers you're encountering along the way. So it's a, it's a win-win-win in that sense. One of the most important things we can do is encourage local communities to understand the benefits of this kind of responsible travel and build more and more attractions that will help preserve the local culture and the local natural treasures and still be profitable. Jeffrey, does that make sense to you? 
Yeah, it does. And I don't know if it's one of those urban myths, but I've heard that you know people say about, for example, Lonely Planet is the, you know, get there before it's too late. And one could argue that, you know, sometimes it's the media that's actually getting the word out of these out-of-the-way destinations that are so beautiful and their paradise and that with the influx of tourists, the place just loses it. It just loses the very thing that was bringing people to see it. I certainly see what you mean, and I know that you've done some excellent work. I, I know, for example, Rick with the Cinque Terre, and, and you came out with that uh, hotelier's etiquette. Right. You know, around pricing and things like that. Right. And uh, I didn't know about the Lonely Planet Foundation. That, that's an interesting thing. But I was just kind of curious to see, you know, with the rise of tourism worldwide, there's going to be more and more impact at the local level. And sometimes they just don't have, particularly in developing countries, they don't have money to invest on on having proper pathways or latrines, yet backpackers still keep on coming. We can certainly educate our travelers to be tuned into how do you consume in a way where the money stays locally. That's what I like. To me, it's irresponsible. or it's, I think it's unethical to go to some lush wonderland that people jet into and play golf when there's a water shortage just outside of the barbed wire fence and there's people walking for water and there's all sorts of problems. To me, that's an ugly form of tourism and I don't want to promote that. There's a big issue when we do go to these pristine places that have hardly ever seen a Westerner. Is it good for us to be there? I was in Papua New Guinea and I was going to places that had never seen an American. I was using a Lonely Planet guidebook and there was a discussion. Should we first worlders go there and photograph these people and and bring them some money, or or should we just let them be? And it's a very tough issue, and I, I don't think there's any easy answer, but I think it's a very good thing for people to be mindful of. One thing that I'm personally committed to in the next year is trying to make my company carbon neutral. As we travel, air travel, we contribute to the global warming, and there's a serious responsibility there, and I'm sure that Lonely Planet is working on this just as, as we are. Yeah, we, we are carbon neutral. We're, everybody on our staff, our writers, we're offsetting all of the travel that we do. And I certainly agree with Rick that I think one of our greatest goals is to educate people. Our feeling is that travelers are going to reach the far corners of the earth whether we point them there or not. They're going to get there one way or another. What we would like to do is give them the tools to go there responsibly and sensitively and actually improve the local place if they can rather than uh, – desecrate it in some way. So that's really, really important. That's part of what we do. And we also go out of our way to educate people about local programs like yours that allow travelers to give back to the communities they're visiting. Jeffrey, I noticed you said northern Vietnam instead of north Vietnam. I guess that's just the new way to refer to that because it's one well, country, I, right? I guess there was once, you know, two countries, but just the area right beside the Chinese border, there's a beautiful backpacking area called Sapa, and it reminds me of the Swiss Alps in a way. It's these beautiful villages, and you can trek from village to village, and yet it's the poorest region of Vietnam. $2 a day is your standard wage. So what we've done is, and because backpackers are already there, we've worked with them to build homestays, and we've created food safety workshops and sanitation and maintenance. So not only does it decrease the risk for visitors to the area, but all those skills will um, have a spin-off benefit in making the lives of the locals. They're better off as a result health-wise, and they're also generating revenue that in turn reduces poverty in the area. So all right. tourism can be made into a, a very positive force. It sure can. I went to a convention in your hometown, Jeffrey, a few years ago uh, in Vancouver, B.C., called Tourism, a Vital Force for Peace. And people yeah. made a very good case on how we can really contribute constructively in our travels. And uh, thank you, Jeffrey, for the... Uh, I love it when Canadians give us a friendly but, but firm nudge as Americans for us to fit better into this planet. Happy travels, Jeffrey. Okay, thanks a lot for your time. You bet. Bye. I'm Rick Steves. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Don George from Lonely Planet. And uh, we'd like to talk to Alan in Federal Way, Washington. Alan, thanks for your call. Uh, thank you, Rick. I'm uh, calling about traveling on frequent flyer miles. Uh, a lot of the airlines seem to recommend that you plan a year in advance when you travel on frequent flyer miles, and with having to plan for work and tours as well, it's difficult to plan that far out. So I figured there must be certain airlines, certain times of the year, and certain cities that might work better for uh, frequent flyer travel than others. 
I've always said there's no good lunch in the airline industry, and there's also no free lunch in the <laughs> airline industry. When it comes to frequent flyer miles, I don't even know how they work because, uh, to me, they're very frustrating. They, I'm sure they come with a very carefully uh, calculated system where there's certain blackout dates, and I hear more and more you have to use your frequent flyer miles by booking long in advance. As a matter of fact, in my tour program now, we're taking bookings longer than ever before, driven by the need for people with frequent flyers to be able to snare that ticket. Don, what's your experience in this issue? Right. You'll certainly find that the most popular travel times are going to be blackouted for your your frequent flyer miles. So you're reduced in many cases to flying in shoulder seasons or off seasons. With creativity, you can get around that or you can adjust your travel plans, but the core travel seasons probably will be off limits to you. Okay. Good luck, Alan. Thank you. All right. We got Sam on the line in Irvine, California. Hi, Sam. Hi, Rick. How are you? Great. Thanks for your call. What's your question? Recently, we went to Paris, and my wife and I enjoyed it very much. We're considering going back again during the off-season, maybe during the winter, to take advantage of the cheaper airfares. Do you have any thoughts about whether the cons of going in the off-season outweigh the pros? You know, Sam, i got to tell you, I I really can't think of any cons of going to Paris in the off-season. The days are shorter, and it's colder. Well, you could get bad weather, so I guess those are cons. But the pros are you don't have the heat and the sweat and the crowds and the frustration and the short-tempered locals in the off-season as you do in the summer. My wife and I go to Paris routinely in the winter for a one-week break, and it's just a good hotel, a a simple, cheap flight for half the price. Uh, We find uh, plenty of good rooms available at great prices off-season, and the museums are wide open. We get an early start. We dress warm because it gets dark earlier. We want to be out there and and getting around in the morning. And uh, I just remind people that it's cold, and it's not like the cold we have at home here in the winter where you're going from your car to the office or Mm -hmm. from your car to the shop. It's cold. You're outdoors for great stretches at a time. Therefore, you want to dress almost like you're skiing. You're going to be out enjoying the park at Versailles without any tourist crowds, and you're going to be glad to have heavy shoes and a heavy coat and mittens and a hat. But I honestly don't see any downside to Paris in the winter other than uh, the, the climate that I, I mentioned. Don? I agree completely. I, I lived in Athens for a year, and the most remarkable, wonderful gift of living there for a year was the ability to go to a place like the Acropolis in the dead of winter and be the only person wandering around those ruins. They, uh-huh. were, they were mine. And as Rick said, the great museums, the great restaurants, there will be fewer people there. And also, the people who are there will be locals. So you'll have a much better experience of connecting with the locals. And the guards are in a good mood at the chateaus <laughs> on the Loire. You're just, I've been in the, at Chenonceau, you know, that gorgeous chateau that drapes over the river there, the postcard sort of pretty chateau, a big log fire going, and one guard hanging out, and I had the palace all to myself with a big crackling fire. I mean, that sounds wonderful. It's, it's, it's really great. <laughs> You're so, going to have uh, a good time. So just bundle up. And I notice more and more people are traveling off-season. The small towns and the resorts on the beach, this sort of thing, they remind me of canned hams in the winter. But the big cities, culture's wide open. You can make a case that the culture's busier in the winter than it is in the summer. You go to Vienna in the summer, no boys' choir, no opera, no Spanish writing school. They're on vacation just like us. Go in the winter, you got the whole wonderful cultural season at your uh, access. Up next, Jeff Greenwald at ethicaltraveler.org shares some helpful tips on cultural etiquette for travelers visiting faraway lands. And later, we'll talk to a couple of professional globetrotters about the South Pacific and Amsterdam. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. I want to share with you some tips for the accidental ambassador. When we travel, we're all ambassadors of goodwill, hopefully. And I've got a friend on the line who's dedicated his career to helping Americans travel in a more thoughtful and sensitive way. Jeff Greenwald is the executive director and co-founder of Ethical Traveler. His website, ethicaltraveler.org, is a wonderland of ways that we can learn to travel as ambassadors of goodwill, culturally sensitive, uh, with good road etiquette. Jeff Greenwald, thanks for joining us. Ah, it's a pleasure to be here. Jeff, you've written these 13 tips for the accidental ambassador, and they seem to be inspired by your firsthand experiences traveling mostly in the developing world. One poignant example was, I believe, when you were in Iran. A lot of them were inspired by experiences I've had traveling, especially in places like Iran. I was there in 1999 for the last eclipse of the of last century, and I was in the Imam Khomeini Square in Isfahan, uh, with alone, the only American with 50,000 Iranians, when a small anti-American demonstration broke out. And the flags were being burned and effigies were being burned. And at that moment, to my astonishment, all the Iranians around me, the men, women, and children, got up and without saying a word, they made a protective circle around me. One of them took my hand, a man put his hand on my shoulder, and uh, it was clear they weren't going to let anything happen to me. And I looked around at the way these people were spontaneously protecting me and thought to myself, my God, these are not the people I've been reading about in the headlines. And I realized at that moment that I was actually an ambassador, and I was being treated like that. And if that was going to be the case when I traveled, I should understand what it took to be an accidental ambassador. You write about uh, the importance of learning the polite words. It's amazing how just a greeting in someone's native language, can completely open up an encounter with them. I mean, they, they, they know if you care enough about the country you're visiting to learn how to say hello and thank you, it will open up ten times more doors than if you just approached everybody in, in English, for example. And they'll be more, I think, willing and energetic about communicating in English, which is where you'll probably end up anyways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you make a mistake saying something, it brings you down a notch. It makes you that much more accessible. It, it, it's, it's all good. So true. Now, the polite words are, um, hello, goodbye, thank you, please. Uh, what else? If you can count up to 20 and then by 10s to 100, you're in good shape, too. Okay, so it's not just please and thank you. It's showing an effort, uh, enough of a respect for the culture to learn the basics like counting. Right. But you don't need to bog down on tenses or you oh. know, any of this kind of stuff. The next one would be spend conscientiously. Right, and that covers a number of different uh, number of different things, but the the main thing is that you should be aware of where your money is going. You are traveling. You're bringing money and resources into an economy. Make sure that the people who need that money and who deserve that money are the people getting that money. Don't go to a developing country and spend your money on a hotel where all the money is going to the owners in France. Stay at locally owned places. Eat at locally owned restaurants. If you want to enjoy Costa Rica, make sure your money goes into the hands of Costa Ricans. Why is that better uh, if you're going to the Sudan and having money uh, not going to France? <laughs> well, it's just great if you uh, have a sense that you're actually contributing to a place that you're enjoying. I mean, when you come for dinner at somebody's house, you bring a bottle of wine. It's not like you just hand a bottle of wine to someone on the street you know, and then go eat dinner with your friends. Mm-hmm. You actually want to help them out because you're, you're taking something from them, so, so give something back. And I think a lot of first-world travelers would be appalled if they knew what percent of their money actually stays in a developing country when they go there on vacation. How little of it stays, you mean? Yeah. How little, yes. I mean, it's amazing. 10% might stay there at that, and the rest is going uh, into some uh, first-world investment there. But with a little bit of planning, a little bit of thinking, you can make almost 100% of your money stay in those countries you're visiting. Another point on Jeff Greenwald's 13 Tips for the Accidental Ambassador, learn the issues. It's so helpful to know when you're going to a country, if there's something going on that everyone in that country is, is aware of. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I went to Burma, to Myanmar, on an assignment once for a political magazine, and so few of the travelers I met, especially the Italian and the French travelers, were even aware that Aung San Suu Kyi, the elected leader of that country, was under house arrest. I mean, if there's uh, an environmental issue, if you're in a country that's about to be inundated with locusts, you should know these things. It will give you an entree with the people, give you something to talk about, show, again, like learning the greetings, that you care enough about them to know what their interests and concerns are. 
it's a safety thing. It enables you to understand your sightseeing and your experiences better, and it's just flat-out good respect for your hosts. Mm -hmm. I'm amazed when I was in India how wonderful. I'm a news junkie, and I just uh, was so detached from first-world news and American news, and I made a point for the month that I was in India, I was only going to read Indian publications about Indian issues, and they're available in English. They're all over the place. And I got immersed in Indian politics, and it was a fascinating dimension to my travels that a lot of people, probably very few Americans, would have enjoyed. It's true. In fact, when you're in the state of Kerala in in India, it's really wonderful to know how proud the people in that state are of their economy and how they've they've built up this wonderful communist uh, socialist economy that's really working in India. They love to talk about it. They love if you've done some research and can go there with them. You know, that's a very good point. When I was in Kerala, man, it's sort of, uh, geographically, it's like the California of uh, India. It's the southwest coast. And when I went there, I knew it was the most socialist part of the country with the most equal uh, distribution of of wealth. They weren't by any means wealthy, but they were equal distribution of wealth. So there wasn't the squalor I found elsewhere in India. They were the most literate part of India, and it was the most Christian part of that country we generally think of as Hindu. Knowing that enabled me to enjoy my visit to that part of India much, much more. Exactly. And it'd be the same if you understood the issues in Sri Lanka or in Israel or even in California before visiting one of those places. It is demoralizing for me as an American to be on the top of a, of a great moment and look around and, and, and see other American tourists that just are clueless to what's the importance of that because they haven't really boned up on the local issues. Next point would be don't be greedy. Don't be greedy. Oh, that, that's so true. I, I think that most travelers aren't really greedy, but there's this thing that comes up when we bargain. I, I think it, it often gets out of hand. Uh, if, if bargaining is really what we're talking about here in a way, right. you go to a lot of markets and souks, and it seems like you can basically get things almost for free. People, you know, there's so much competition. Merchants are so desperate. Sometimes the price goes down further and further. Next thing you know, you're walking away with something, and the person you bargained with, you know, maybe made a three or four cent profit on what they were selling, but it was better than nothing. I think that bargaining fairly is an art. It's fun to bargain, but both the buyer and seller should feel satisfied at the end of it. You shouldn't feel like you really ripped someone off. So that's an interesting issue to me because as a matter of principle, I don't like to be ripped off. On the other hand, I'm aware that one click of my camera in the days when I used film cost me as much as the person I was photographing would make in the entire day. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the out of whack economic situation is just hard to hard to fathom. Uh, nevertheless, I would get in there and, as a matter of principle, bargain really hard. So you're saying it's more sensitive just to realize that we don't need to be so cutthroat in that regard. And in a related area, a lot of times you'll be overcharged for your um, rickshaw ride or whatever. Be used to the fact that they're going to charge Westerners a little bit more. Sometimes you will be ripped off. Sometimes you'll. I mean, if you have a basic sense from other travelers of what things cost you can avoid the worst rip-offs. There's this great anecdote of someone who paid a rickshaw driver $100 U.S. to take them from the airport to their hotel. Of course, that's extortionate. But there will be some differences between you know, what you pay and what other people pay. And if it's a little more, just write it off as stupidity tax. Pay it cheerfully and go on your way. Don't dwell on it. Without letting it mess up your perception of the people in that country. Exactly. I find a lot of people who are having a sour experience because... They're being charged $2 instead of $1 for a taxi ride. Or in my case in Laos, when I was charged $0.07 cents instead of $0.04, cents, I, you know, it was a difference of like several thousand kip, and I went ballistic. I hit the roof, and then when I stopped to think about it, it was $0.03. Cents. I felt like such a fool. Good advice. I'm talking with Jeff Greenwald, who's a travel writer, and he's dedicated his career really to helping Americans travel in an ethical way. He runs an outfit called Ethical Traveler. His website's ethicaltraveler.org. And Jeff Greenwald has put together what he calls 13 Tips for the Accidental Ambassador, culturally sensitive insights for good road etiquette for all of us. The next tip would be learn to listen. This is one thing that's really struck me, especially when I was traveling in Iran in 1999. Many people who realized I was an American came up and they began talking to me in a way that I realized they weren't just talking to me. They seemed to be talking to my whole country. And at that point, I realized that for many people, especially in the developing world, but also in Europe, also in Mexico, having the ear of an American is like having the ear of America. And it's really true. You've got to learn how to listen to people and understand that when people are talking to you, they really understand that you're going to talk to your friends, you're going to write a blog, you're going to write letters, you might even, if you're like me or or you, Rick, you might even write articles or a book, 
and communicate what they're saying to the rest of the world. So I think it's a wonderful thing for American travelers to learn how to listen and understand that that's the point at which we really are ambassadors more than any other point. Wow. Somebody takes the time in the developing world to sit down with an American and, and tell them something. They're really trying to talk to our entire country. And it's important when you reply, too, just to, to reply in a humble way, say whatever your, your opinion is, is not necessarily gospel, but to answer respectfully with a, with a real sense of having heard what the other person has had to say. Also, learn and respect traditions and taboos. Nothing is more embarrassing than seeing a Western tourist being photographed on the lap of a Thai Buddha, or mm. even worse, sitting on the head of a Thai Buddha. If, if the Thai authorities don't knock him off the Buddha, I'm tempted to do it myself. One of the worst taboos in Thailand, for example, is being disrespectful to a Buddha image, and the other worst one is touching any person on the head. Right. So you see these, these taboos combined by travelers, and it really makes you wince. I think any good guidebook will explain uh, the taboos that you've got to be mindful of while you're traveling in the developing world. Or you the... just go on Google and you put in uh, Greenland taboos, and you'll get a whole list of all the things you can't do on, you know, in a place like Greenland. Well, that's a great idea. And shake hands with a penguin, for example. Another point, don't give money to children. The, and not just money. Candy, gifts, balloons pencils, band-aids. People who travel, this is my, you, you've hit on my personal pet peeve here, because people who travel often feel that it's, it's wonderful, the great white hope, they come running into these little villages in Nepal and the Himalaya and Peru, and they start doling out candy or coins to children. And from that moment on, every day is like trick-or-treat in these, in these countries. Mm -hmm. Every traveler who comes from that point on has to deal with the fact that you gave stuff away to the kids. It teaches the kids to be beggars, and it takes them away from understanding who really is providing for them. Hmm. If you bring money, if you bring pencils, if you bring notebooks, if you bring balloons, give them to a parent, give them to a teacher. Let these people distribute them so the kids will know where to turn for treats. It's not to Western travelers that they should be turning. It's, it's one of the things that people like you and I, Rick, have really seen change in the world. I mean, there are places in Nepal where I was trekking 25 years ago, where the kids, they would just come up to you, they would give you a flower, they would just hold your hand for a while. Now in these villages, all the kids are running up saying, oh, bon bon rupia. And it changed, it's changed recently, and I don't know if there's any way to take it back. That's so sad, because my memory of Nepal is gorgeous little kids clasping their hands and just saying, namaste, I salute your virtues. But now they'll say, bon bon bakshish, huh? Uh, in a lot of places, they will. Next point on Jeff Greenwald's 13 Tips for the Accidental Ambassador, be open-minded. Be open-minded. You're one of the world's most open-minded travelers. Do you have any examples of that yourself? Well, I, I just okay. was raised thinking the world is a pyramid with the uh, United States on top and everybody else trying to get there. And then I traveled to lands that met people that had nowhere near the affluence and opportunity and freedom that I had, and they wouldn't trade passports. They liked being who they are and mm -hmm. doing it their way. And to me, one of the great things about travel is you're no longer threatened by differences, but you learn to celebrate them. And I've been humbled in my travels. I mean, I used to be disgusted with Indians who seem to f take better care of their cows than they took care of their children. How can you feed your cows and starve your children, I used to think. And then I just decided, hey, who am I to even judge how 800 million Hindus prioritize here? So the point here is really to, to leave your preconceptions about the world at home, to, to understand that people live in, in different ways and that people are generally around the world, are, are, a lot of them are fairly happy with their lives, even if they're not living the way we are. And to just realize there's a lot of ways to, to make your way uh, through your lifetime on this planet and just be respectful of it. You know, when we travel, we, we do have to endure a lot of frustrations and maddening bureaucracy and so on, and uh, Western travelers are famous for their tantrums. One of Jeff's tips is flat-out no tantrums. Anger is something that Westerners like to indulge in. It's, it's actually part of our social life. You know, you get angry with people. We love watching shows like Seinfeld or Curb Your Enthusiasm or All in the Family where people get angry at each other. It's very funny. And, you know, in, in the developing world, they find anger funny, too, but they don't think it's funny to have anger directed at them. If you get angry with someone in, in a lot of places in Southeast Asia, they'll smile and they'll smile and they'll smile until you make them angry enough, and then they'll kill you. It's like there's, there's not this spectrum of levels of anger. Wow. It's very important to curb your anger and to cultivate your sense of humor when you travel. And I've found a sense of humor really helps. If I'm in some um, 
bus stop in in eastern Turkey, and everybody's staring at me. It gets on my nerves, and then I realize they need some entertainment. So I pick up a honeydew melon with my buddy, and we play football with it and teach everybody how to play football. And it turns a tense situation into something that's a lot of fun for everybody. It's true, and and part of that also, that thing with anger, you know, I was speaking to a Nepali friend some years ago, and I said, you know, she was talking about how much she disliked Americans, and I said, is there one particular thing that Americans have in common that you dislike? And she says, yes, if they get angry, they threaten you. I won't give you my business anymore. I won't come back to this country. I'll tell the authorities about you. I'll do this. I'll do that. That's an important thing to remember, too. Don't threaten people. Keep a sense of humor. Don't threaten people. Just keep a sense of humor. Make a joke out of the most adverse situation. And you can turn a situation around that way. It's really remarkable. Another tip for the accidental ambassador, ask for help. The most useful phrase travelers can learn, I think, is the simple phrase, can you help me? I mean, often travelers get into hot water. I don't mean doing illegal activities. I mean unable to find the train station, uh, unable to find a place to leave their backpack if they go into a museum. If you just come up to somebody who looks fairly trustworthy and just say, can you help me? In all my years of travel, I think I can count on the fingers of one hand the times that people have said no. People around the world are happy to help you. They love to help you. They want to help you. And it's one of the most wonderful ways you can bring out this whole idea of a global community is by being willing to ask for help when you need it as well as to offer it when it's asked. And finally, this last tip is, seems like it's more philosophy than a tip. Maintain a sense of adventure. Maintain a sense of adventure. Um, and, you know, when I travel, I always try to remember Kurt Vonnegut Jr.'s wonderful line. I think it was from Cat's Cradle. The line, uh, strange travel adventures are dancing lessons from God. It's very true, and we can all, all of us travelers, can think of times that we took that unexpected turn or made that unexpected encounter that really changed our lives. So be open, above all, to those kinds of encounters and to those strange travel suggestions. Everybody has tips for packing and tips for staying healthy and tips for saving money, but we've been talking about tips for the accidental ambassador to travel culturally sensitive with the best road etiquette, thanks to Jeff Greenwald. I think, Jeff, these tips would really translate it into happy travelers for a, a lot of us on our next trip. Thanks. I just hope I can remember them all myself next time I'm traveling. Well, I'm going to keep track of them. And we've been talking with Jeff Greenwald. He is the uh, executive director and co-founder of Ethical Traveler. For more on Jeff's work, check out his website. It's ethicaltraveler.org. Thanks, Jeff. Happy travels. Sure. Thanks, Rick. A good place to try out your skills as a culturally sensitive traveler is the South Pacific. Travel writer David Stanley is an expert on Oceania. His massive moon handbook to the South Pacific covers the region beautifully. David joins us next to paint an overview of this vast region speckled with fascinating islands. And for a little urban contrast, we'll compare notes with a Lonely Planet author to see how he maintains a natural high in Amsterdam. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hello, my name is Elizabeth Van Hest and I was born in the Netherlands and I'm going to teach you a tongue twister, what we use in the Netherlands. So, Lotje leer de liesje lopen langs de lange lindelaan. That means Lotje, a girl, taught liesje, another girl, to walk along the lane of linden trees, a long lane of linden trees. So that makes Lotje leer de liesje lopen langs de lange lindelaan. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're traveling to the South Pacific. There's a watery continent called Oceana, and I've got a man who's written a thousand-page guidebook, and it's the South Pacific Handbook, published by Moon. And this man is David Stanley. David, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Rick. David, what a beat. You've got this huge, watery continent, Oceana, and, and that's what you cover. Yes, it's, it's immense. My book covers the whole area from Easter Island to the Solomon Islands, so almost from South America right over to Australia. Now, am I pronouncing that correctly? Is it Oceania? Oceania. Oceania. Yeah, and, there's an I there at the end of the word. <laughs> and it's 15 different countries. 
Well, they're not all independent countries. Some of them are still colonies, like there are three French colonies in the South Pacific, French Polynesia, New Caledonia, and Wallace and Futuna. And then there are several associated states with New Zealand, including the Cook Islands, Niue, and Tokelau. And a monarchy, too. And there's a monarchy, yes, Tonga, the Kingdom of Tonga. It's one of the few countries of the world which was never colonized by the West. And, you know, you can count the number of countries around the world that were never European colonies, like there was Japan, Nepal, I think Saudi Arabia, and Tonga. Only a few countries, and, and Tonga's one. And they still have the same king descended from the 17th century. His ancestors welcomed Captain Cook there for the first time. I just have a hard time even imagining that there are vital, independent cultures still thriving in this age where there's a Starbucks on every corner. But it sounds like in South Pacific you can actually connect with this Paradise Lost business or Paradise Found business. You can, because the basic unit in most of the South Pacific countries is the village. And village culture is very strong based on sharing of the land. Often the land is communally owned and it's assigned to a person for their lifetime, but it isn't owned by that person. It definitely cannot be sold to people off-island. And so the culture remains very strong and very pure. And yet, these people are well-educated. You should never underestimate a South Pacific Islander, because they have their own way. It might not be the same as us, but they are very, very up on everything. They know what's going on around the world. They know about global warming, about all the problems we have in the world. It's a big mistake to underestimate a South Pacific Islander. And I bet Given their uh, geography, I bet they are concerned about global warming if that would result in the rising of the sea. Exactly. It's, it's, uh, actually, there's one country there, Tuvalu, which is, is destined to be totally inundated within the next century. And uh, probably all of the population will have to be evacuated to... Uh, the population, about 8,000 at the moment, will have to be evacuated to Australia and New Zealand. And they are actually challenging the United States in the world court. I don't think the case has actually been brought up, but they have lawyers working on it. They're, they're suing the United States for creating this pollution, which is causing the sea level to rise and their whole country to be flooded. Well, a lot of people have created it. It's not just the United States, but I would say they've got grounds to be upset given the fact that the United States is outvoted in the United Nations 140 to 4 when it comes to global warming initiatives. Right. Well, there are people working on this in the South Pacific, and it's, it's quite uh, well known. But, you know, this is, this is a, a fantastic area because it's far enough away from large continents that they don't receive huge number of tourists. Yeah. Like the Caribbean and the Mediterranean are in some ways comparable island destinations, um, but they are right next to big continents, which are sending lots of people down there. Places like Samoa or the Cook Islands are far away, and they don't get the masses of tourists that Hawaii gets, for example. I'm speaking with David Stanley, the author of The Moon Handbook to South Pacific. It's a thousand-page tome. It's the definitive guidebook for an uh, entire continent that we don't think much about, Oceania. I was reading in your book, David, uh, in the South Pacific, you say there's 7,500 islands and only five. 500 of them are populated. And what would the population in ballpark terms be for the entire continent of Oceania? It's probably about a million. It depends what you include, you know, like some people when they're talking are mainly tour operators. If they talk about the South Pacific, they include Australia and New Zealand in, in that. Oh, yeah. But I wouldn't include those countries at all in the South Pacific because they operate totally differently. And then you have to include Papua New Guinea. Oh, yeah. which has a population itself of three or four million. Yeah, but apart from that, this scattering of 15 or 18 little independent countries, it's basically it's a huge rectangle between Australia and South America, and your guidebook covers this. Let's just talk briefly, David, about the logistics of, of getting there, because you've done it with different air passes. I would imagine these days you have airplanes that hop from island to island. You get there... Um, from the USA, can you get an air pass? Can you hop around with no problem with visas and, and these kind of restrictions? Well, there are no visas required in any of the countries included in my book, which includes everything, you know, right across. So you don't have to worry about visas. Now, the main hubs in the South Pacific are Tahiti and especially Fiji. If you can get to Fiji, 
you can go almost anywhere in the South Pacific. There is a South Pacific air pass, which covers most of the islands. But what I recommend people, the, the most efficient way to do it is to book through Air New Zealand, and you can buy a sort of an island hopping ticket that they call the Coral Route. And that will take you from anywhere on the west coast of North America down to um, Tahiti, Cook Islands, mm. Fiji, and then back to Hawaii. Or if you want to do it a slightly different way, instead of going back to Hawaii from Fiji, you go down to New Zealand, and then you come back to Hawaii via Tonga and Samoa. So you can include almost all of those destinations on one ticket for one price. Okay, so you mentioned in your book that Australians generally think of Indonesia and Thailand as their vacation zone, and New Zealanders think of all these little island nations in Oceania as their vacation zone. Exactly. So think of it as the playground of New Zealand. Yes. New Zealanders have traditionally gone to Cook Islands and to Fiji and Samoa, for their holidays, but New, New Zealand is a small country. How many people live in New Zealand? I, I'm not. I don't have the figure here. Is three or four million? Not many. It isn't a mass tourist destination like you've got 250 million Americans who might want to go to Hawaii sometime in right. their life, as opposed to three million New Zealanders who might want to go to the Cook Islands sometime in their or life. the vacationers in Europe who want to inundate uh, Mallorca and Menorca exactly. and so on. That's why I steer clear of those islands. Yeah. And, and, you know, this has kept the prices down. Like, mm -hmm. the South Pacific is generally much less expensive than the Caribbean once you're there. David, we could talk a lifetime in this, but I just want to let our listeners know that you've dedicated 20 years of your life to writing this South Pacific handbook published by Moon. And David Stanley is our traveler. He's got a website, South, what is it, David? South SouthPacific.org, O-R-G. SouthPacific.org to learn more about this. David, thank you for a little look at a fascinating corner of our planet. Well, you're welcome, Rick. Bye now. Bye. Next, without generating any carbon emissions, we spin halfway around the world from the South Pacific. Andy Bender writes for Lonely Planet about Amsterdam. He's here to compare notes with me on some of our favorite sites in one of our favorite cities. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're going to Amsterdam, and we are joined by Andrew Bender. Andy writes the Lonely Planet Guide to Amsterdam. And I write the Rick Steves Guidebook to Amsterdam. And we're going to get together and give you an idea of the best experience in Amsterdam. Andy, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. It's great to be here. When we go to Amsterdam, we all know about Anne Frank's house and the Rijksmuseum and the Van Gogh Museum. What do you think most typically an American tourist would, would miss when they go to Amsterdam that they should be sure to check out? One of the things that I like to check out when I'm there are um, the Albert Kaup Market, it's called. It's right down in the very southern part of the city. It's in a district called De Pipe. PIJP. It's one of those places where the entire ethnic diversity of the city, culinary diversity of the city, even shopping diversity comes together. It's called the Albert Kaup Market, C-U-Y-P, um, and it stretches for several blocks in the southern part of the city. And it's just a 10-minute walk from the Dam Square, isn't it, by the Mint Tower? No, it's a little farther away. You want to get there by uh, by tram. Ah, okay. Um, but it's, it's a really lovely, wonderful area. It's very historic and very diverse. There's another place that I love to visit, which is the Red Light District, and I know that's going to sound a little bit risque to some of you folks, but actually, if you look at the architecture and try to ignore everything else, you're going to have a beautiful time out there. And hiding in the Red Light District is a church that's hiding behind domestic building fronts. That's right. It's called the Museum Amstelkring, and the center part of the museum is the Church of Our Dear Lord in the Attic, as it's called. It goes back to the days when Catholics were not permitted to worship openly in the Netherlands. Everybody thinks of the Netherlands as being this very tolerant country, which certainly is by contemporary standards, but there was a time when it was not so tolerant. Now, that's interesting because it's on the tourist list, so most tourists have gone there, and it's a pretty sizable church in the gutted-out interior of three or four different private mansions, and 
The officials knew that Catholics were worshiping there, uh, but the point was it wasn't in your face. It was hiding behind really low-key facade. And it's sort of similar even today. I mean, marijuana is, Amsterdam is famous for marijuana day. Marijuana is not legal, but it's tolerated. Back then, Catholicism, you couldn't worship it in open, but it was tolerated. There's this tolerance that weaves through the whole story of Amsterdam that I find unique. It's really true. It goes back for many centuries now. Amsterdam was one of the first nations in Europe to welcome uh, Jewish immigrants from Spain, for example, who were being persecuted, or Huguenots from France who could not practice freely in their own countries. So Amsterdam has this ethic of kind of we're all individuals, yet we're all in this together. And while there's a lot of tolerance, the flip side to tolerance, they say the twin of tolerance is responsibility. That's right. It's the responsibility not to harm anybody else, and it's the responsibility to keep yourself in a state where you don't become a burden to others. So uh, their concept of a victimless crime doesn't they don't, they don't buy that. There's no victimless crime. No, I wouldn't say so. Now, in your book, you are a big fan of the Eastern Docklands. I've not been there. What's, what's so special about the Eastern Docklands? The Eastern Docklands are a district sort of east of uh, Central Station. Um, it sits along what's called the I. Pretai is the way they pronounce it in Dutch. Um, it's I-J. A lot of uh, foreigners don't know how, what to do with those two letters, but it's pronounced I in Dutch. It's an area that used to be shipping channels for the very large trading companies that were based right here in the Netherlands. Those lands lay fallow for many, many generations until finally in the late 1990s, city planners got planning and they got the idea to build incredibly cool, cutting-edge modern architecture right there in the middle of the Docklands. All right, so this is a place just to check in with today's Amsterdam, really. A lot of people will go to Rotterdam if they want to go see the uh, cutting-edge Dutch architecture, but you don't even have to leave Amsterdam for it now. There's so much fun to experience in the Netherlands, and especially Amsterdam. I think you've got to be careful of some tacky sites. I'm talking with Andrew Bender, who writes The Lonely Planet Guide to Amsterdam. Andy, what's your nomination for the tackiest tourist trap in Amsterdam? Oh, my goodness. Where do we even begin? Um, I would say the area that's just south of uh, Central Station. It's called the Damrock. Right. Um, and it's a street that's just lined with all kinds of tourist shops and frites shops, meaning French fries, of course. And um, and Hooters. You, you know, can go to a Hooters there and be served by a Dutch girl. That's right. All right. There's high-class right. Holland. There is a thrill for that. So. <laughs> my favorite tacky site would be the Holland Experience, which happens to be right next to Rembrandt's house. It's just a little um, kind of a gimmicky uh, movie where the, the chairs all uh, rock with the sea when the, when the wind comes up and you get spritzed with perfume when they take you out into the tulip fields. You know, uh, a lot of people like it, but uh, I think people miss sites. Andy, what would you say the most underrated site is if somebody has limited time they want to be sure to check out? Well, if you have only very limited time in Amsterdam, I would say that you must go check out the canals. I mean, it's really the essence of the city, particularly the Western Canal Belt. If you look in the area, there's one shopping district there called the Nehestraches, or the uh, Nine Alleys, as they're called in English. And they have really wonderful little specialty shops, everything from a place that sells nothing but tooth care products, you know, a thousand different kinds of toothbrushes, to men's fashions and women's fashions, and places that look at art that's in the form of books, and you know, all these really wonderful tiny little shops, a place that sells nothing but antique eyeglasses. So that's literally the, like the nine alleys, and they're kind of like a tic-tac-toe sign or something like exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. And it's, um, I don't know exactly, but for people for ballparking it, it's between the Dam Square and Anne Frank's house? Uh, yeah, it's a little bit, uh, yeah, it, roughly there. If we're talking about experiencing the canals, of course, you've got to take one of those canal boat rides. And I find that they're, you know, all the tour groups take them, and it costs you 10 bucks, and you got an hour, an hour and a half cruising through the canals. But I think they're quite nice, and a lot of them have live guides, and they'll speak rapidly in three or four different languages. Uh, do you have any sense of which canal boat ride would be the most rewarding? I think you're best off if you go to a canal boat ride that specializes in something. One of my favorites takes in uh, the architecture of the city, and it really just kind of examines it from that one little point of view. I think that if you try to take on too much at once, it all becomes a blur. But if you look at one thing, you get to experience a lot of the others without taxing yourself overly. I get a sense that Andrew Bender knows that a traveler's time is precious and you always have too much to see with too little time if you're an American with the shortest vacations in the rich world. And it really behooves you to have a good guidebook and then read your options because many people just take the slam dunk generic canal boat ride. But as Andrew said, there are specialty canal boat rides that would give you a more focused experience. My vote for the most underrated site is the Resistance Museum. There is a heroic, heroic Dutch resistance. And if you saw The Soldier of Orange, what a great movie. And too many Americans just go to Anne Frank's house, and that's their whole Holocaust sort of experience. And, of course, you've got to see Anne Frank's house. But don't miss the Resistance Museum, the Dutch resistance. Have you been there, Andrew? Absolutely. It's a great, great museum.
I've been talking with Andrew Bender, and Andy writes The Lonely Planet Guide to Amsterdam. And, and Andy, on your last uh, research trip, what was the most pleasant surprise you stumbled into? Um, it was on the Albert Kalp Market that I mentioned earlier. It's a restaurant called Bazaar, B-A-Z-A-R. It uh, is this soaring, wonderful old church of a building with you know three-story ceilings and uh, Middle Eastern food. It's got a 1,001 Arabian lights, as I wrote about it in the book, that are sort of strung around the ceiling and these wonderful murals all over the place. The idea is that anybody should be able to find a little bit of himself or herself in that building. So you've got signage in Chinese, you've got Hebrew lettering in the rafters, all kinds of great stuff. Andy, there's one word that sort of sums up Dutch conviviality, and I can't even pronounce it. What is that word, and what does it mean to you? The word is gezelligheid, and it's as hard to pronounce uh, as it is easy to understand once you've experienced it. It's this trait of being very close, very snug, making friends very easily, being able to talk to anybody. And if you're sitting in a brown cafe by a canal somewhere, you're going to experience it one way or another. Wow, wild and crazy as Amsterdam appears to the travelers, there is that gezelligheid. That, how do you say it again? Gezelligheid. The coziness of a magnificent city. Andy Bender, author of The Lonely Planet Guide to Amsterdam, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. It's been a pleasure. Gezelligheid. Gezelligheid. <laughs> Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback, archived audio on demand, and podcast extras. You'll find it in the radio section of our website, ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.